Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Program, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. You can always visit us at www.commonwealthclub.org. It's my great pleasure to introduce Denise Schickel again. Um, she gave a lecture here uh, several years ago on Nietzsche, and now she's here to speak about uh, what she just did, her PhD thesis on the expat experience. Thanks a lot for coming back, Denise. Thank you, George. Could we have... So thank you for coming. I was wondering how many expatriates we have in the audience, how many people who have been an expatriate? Yes. Expatriate is a person who works overseas in a foreign country. So there's a few expatriates here. How many people are planning on working overseas? Yes. All right. And how many people are just expatriate curious? <laughs> yes, great, everyone. So briefly, I will just mention that I was in the Peace Corps. I taught English as a foreign language in Morocco, spoke Arabic and French. It's a two-year assignment, and that was many years ago. And when I went to graduate school, and I was interested in cross-cultural work and decided that writing about expatriates and cross-cultural training and that whole process would be interesting to me, and that's what I did my dissertation on. So how many people think that when you send an employee overseas, they're going to get some training before they go? Can you imagine that they would get some training? Maybe cultural training, maybe some language training, at least things about the customs so you don't insult anyone, right? Well, that's not always the case, I found out. So I'm going to tell you some stories of the people that I interviewed, and you will see a wide range of experiences among them. First, we'll start with the classic expatriate is someone who is taken by his company and sent overseas on an assignment and brought back. And this, the minimum requirement was this for one year. So we'll start with Gabriel. Gabriel was a manager in a big company in the Midwest in his mid-40s. And his company sent him to London. Now, he took his whole family with him. What kind of training do you think he prov the, they provided his family before they left? Yes? Four hours. Four hours he got. He and his family had a meeting for four hours before they were sent to London. Then they went to London and they had an organization that was supposed to put them in a housing position. Well, that didn't work out, so Gabriel had to go find a company to help him find a house, and he found a house where he lived in an expatriate community with his family. It was very nice, a lot of Americans around, his children went to the American school, his wife got involved with the American women, and he was just a few minutes from the train ride into London. He worked in London for four and a half years as a manager of 22 different regional offices in Europe and the Middle East. The first day in the office, this is a big job, isn't it? Yes? The first day he went to work, the man who he was replacing was still in the office. This was awkward. Nobody wanted to talk to him. Nobody knew how to behave. They didn't have an office for him. He had a desk in the copy room. This continued until the man left, and then Gabriel settled in, and he, he did a great job. He and his family traveled around the area. They traveled around Europe. They had medical care, but it didn't work out. They didn't understand the health system. They weren't comfortable with the health system in Britain. So when they had family problems with health, they sent him back to the United States. After his time in Europe, where he was very successful, he was brought back to the Midwest. And when he came back, what's, what kind of debrief do you suppose he got? What about all the information that he learned over there? Was there a repatriation debrief? No, there wasn't. He came back to the United States, went back to his office. They said, here's your desk, back to work. Three years later, he left, formed another company, made millions of dollars. 
classic expat, sent overseas, not trained properly, not supported properly, brought back, not brought back properly, leaves and becomes successful on his own. So because the literature is full of stories like this, this is why I wanted to do this study. Now we have Brad, who was a lawyer in uh, the Bay Area, in fact. He lives in the Bay Area, worked for a bank. They wanted to develop an office in London. He went to London, but he had been there before, so he knew them. And he had enough cultural intelligence to know that as an American, he had to behave a certain way in order to get along with the Brits because they're a little more reserved than he are, than we, than we are. So he, he moderated his behavior. He, changed, he upgraded his clothes. He got better clothes. He got a better haircut. He became more reserved, more dignified, so that he could get along with everybody in the office. He had a great time, was very successful, had some logistical problems in the beginning, though. They provided him with housing, but he didn't have the internet for weeks. He had to work at home. He couldn't get phone service right away. So he had a lot of problems along the way that the company had not really thought about. He came back, very successful, and he continued to liaison with that office for years. So now we have a couple engineers. Engineers who work for international companies, when they go overseas, it doesn't matter where they are because the company is so large that it takes the culture with it. They're in an expat community. There are people there that they might know from another service. And they, they're surrounded by English language people. So far, everybody's functioning in English. So we have Denver Dave, who was an engineer, spent 20 years overseas, 11 different countries all over the world, working for a large construction company. Never learned another language, very task-focused. Went to work every day, saw everything as an adventure. Didn't get involved in the communities around him, but he traveled all over the world with his wife, who was with him. And we have Waldo, a man who was working in a factory in New York, another engineer. They wanted to send him to the Dominican Republic to start a factory there, to build a factory. Well, Waldo goes to the Dominican Republic with his family, and he gets there, and his, his, his household goods are shipped overseas, but he can't get them off the ship because he won't pay the bribe. Seven months it took him. His wife came back to America, said, when you get our stuff out of storage, I'll come back. <laughs> so dealing with the local politics was an issue there. Now, he was in a country where he spoke Spanish. The first day he went to the factory, he sat down with his employees and said, look, I'm here to work with you. I want you to tell me what you need. And they had a great time. They played pranks on him that day, and he taught... They, they took him out to eat, and he had some great food, and he had a really good time because he started to embed himself right away in the culture. He learned some Spanish. And the most important thing for him, when I asked him the question, what was your greatest personal, what was the most positive personal experience you had? Do you know what he said? That we had a 0% error rate in the factory. That's what mattered to him, completely task-focused, Traveled around, had adventures, his family had adventures, but he was totally task-focused rather than embedding himself in the culture, as sometimes people do. Now we have Louis. Louis was, a, Louis was a construction man. He had been a carpenter, and he went to British West Indies to work on a job to remodel a hotel. They gave Louis a place to stay. He stayed in the hotel. He ate in the hotel. He went to work in his bathing suit. You know, and he couldn't believe it, but... He, he, was, he was there for a few months, and all of a sudden, his boss left. And Louis's the manager now. He had never done that before, so he went through a steep learning curve. And he learned very well, and he, he started to feel what he could describe as cabin fever. He said, man, I, this place is so small, there's nowhere to go. I can't drive because everybody's driving on the right side of the road. He tried that a few times, almost had some accidents. So he started swimming, and he would, he would scuba dive to the nearby islands and that kind of thing. He worked there for a couple of years, and he came back to the States. And he felt like it was a great success. Now, we move on to the next, the next group. We have a woman named Ellie, who is an attorney. Ellie was working for a company in the United States. They sent her to France to work in an international company 
and they needed an American lawyer. They were selling aircraft parts. So there was her, there was an Italian lawyer, there was a British lawyer and a French lawyer. And she was in her 30s. She was single. She had a great time. She had her Mustang sent over. She ran around with the expats on the weekends. And they went to parties. And she worked there for two years. Very task-focused. But she had fun in the environment, being with the French and the, and the other expats. Um, one problem she did have, though, is even though the company had helped her get an apartment, she ended up living near the train station. Now, she didn't really think anything of it until every morning when she'd go out and go to work, there were all these nice ladies around, <laughs> all, all dressed up, giving her bonjour, bonjour. And she got to know them, and she thought, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be living at the train station. <laughs> so, so she had to move. The company didn't help her move, but she got her friends to help her move. And when she came back to the States, she said, one thing people should know when they come back to the United States is where they can live and where they can't live. So she went to France. Two years there, she met a Scottish man working for the same company, and they got married. Then they moved to Scotland. Now she's not single lady anymore. She's married lady. And she's living with his family, and she has the whole family, her whole culture. Then she gets completely embedded in the culture. But she's still very task-focused because she's a lawyer everywhere she goes, and she loves being a lawyer. She was in Scotland. They sent her into Britain. They sent her all different posts around Britain for 10 years. She lived over there. And when she came back to the States, it took her two years to adjust. They sent her to North Carolina. Now, she grew up in New York. And... <laughs> Right? Exactly. I mean, it's enough already to go from New York to North Carolina without going through France and Scotland on the way. So she had a really hard time when she came back. And she still, and then she came out to San Francisco, where, of course, I met her and interviewed her. And she, she still had trouble adjusting. One thing that's a common theme that comes up over and over again is it's always harder coming back than people think it's going to be. Everybody says that. Everybody I've ever talked to who's been abroad and, and things I've read on Facebook, expat groups and things like that, everybody says it's harder coming home than you think it's going to be for many different reasons. So that's Ellie. Now we have Allison, another woman. She's a manager. She had traveled abroad, though, before, and she knew some French. So it wasn't her first time out. Her company sent her to Australia to work with this company down there. And the first day she walked into the office and they said, we don't want you bringing your American ways down here. <laughs> and so, and they didn't help her find a place to live. She had a lot of trouble finding a place to live. She had to take buses and rent cars. And she lived in two or three different places before she got settled in Australia, but she was only there for less than a year, thankfully. Then they sent her to Hong Kong which was great. They set her up in a service apartment. The people were very nice to her. They took care of all her needs. They took care of her paperwork and her banking needs and everything like that. She was very happy. But she was very, she was single. She was kind of lonely because she couldn't get involved like some of the other people did with the families and the, the school and all that kind of thing. Oh, I forgot to mention about Australia. Every day, every day after work at Australia, they get off work at 4.35 o'clock and everybody would go out to drink. Well, she didn't drink. So she couldn't participate, really, in that culture. That's another thing. How do you socialize with people? How do you get into the culture? How do you make friends? How do you make friends with your colleagues if you don't engage in the social activities that they engage in? She was in Hong Kong, and they sent her to Japan, and she was in India, and she was all over the place teaching them how to do these new computer systems that they were going to use for, um, for taking, keeping, keeping track of their materials. When she came back to the United States, her boss told her she didn't have a job anymore. <laughs> so she said, okay, fine. She went to Europe and traveled for a few months. Then later on, she went back to London. So she was fine. What she said was, though, that all that trip throughout Asia trying to teach people how to use the new computer system taught her patience. 
when she was in Japan, they had these large books. They wrote everything down in these books. And she was trying to get them to go from writing everything down in these large books to putting it on the computer. And she said, well, they didn't want to do it, but she was the boss, so she had authority over them. So they did it, but she knew as soon as she left, they were going to go back to writing in the books again. So, um, so that's Allison, task-focused and participating in the culture to an extent. She said the hardest thing for her was being single and not being able to get involved in some of the social activities. Now, the next group, I have a group here of English language teachers. We'll start with Marie. Marie went to China. She already knew Chinese. She had been teaching in Taiwan for a few years. She was asked to go to China to teach sort of advanced English, not just English language, but critical thinking in English and that sort of thing. She went over there. She was with her husband, which was nice. They lived in a dormitory. She was in her 30s. And they lived in a dormitory. There was medical care for them. She had a bicycle. She rode around all the time. One time she was out on a bicycle and she had an accident. She and another woman ran into each other. And everybody was all, there was a crowd that gathered, you know, everybody's watching them and there she's this American. And there weren't many people in China at the time, many Westerners, so people were staring at her all the time. But she knew some Chinese, which wasn't exactly the Chinese that she had been speaking in Taiwan, so she had to kind of learn the language better. Anyway, she was in this bicycle accident, and people were hovering around her, and the woman wants some money from her, because you ran into me on your bicycle. I want some money. And she said, well, I don't have any money. Can we go to the hospital? The woman said, no, I don't want to go to the hospital. So this went on and on for a while, and finally, the crowd, the crowd said, well, you should go to the hospital. And there was this whole big thing, and she was very stressed out about it, but finally, the crowd went away, and the woman said, okay, you know, I'm okay. And she just gave her a little bit of money, and that was the end of it. But that was one of the things she described as one of her difficult experiences. She enjoyed teaching. She had a little trouble with the government because there was all so much propaganda about the Chinese government being the best. And, and she felt like she couldn't teach the students critical thinking if they were dealing with propaganda all the time. So that was an issue for her. One of the things she said was very difficult when she started to leave, when she came home after three years. She said that some of her, she had a tailor when she was over there, was making clothes for her. And they had become very close, her husband and her, to the tailor family. And when she wanted to leave, the tailor uh, asked her for some money. And she, I mean, these people didn't have any money at that time. And she felt bad because she didn't have a lot of money, but she knew she had more money than they did. And so she said, no, she couldn't give him any money because she was giving you some of her other friends. She was giving them money, and she just didn't know really how to handle it. But she felt bad about it later. And um, she said that that was a really difficult thing for her. And when she was in China at that time, every time she went out with her friends, she was always paying. She says now when she goes back, they're always paying because they're the ones with the money. And she's been going back and forth to China. She, after that, she got a master's in Chinese. So this is an example of somebody who completely embedded themselves in the culture. She got a master's in Chinese literature. She speaks Chinese. She goes to China all the time. She went back and forth after that experience. She lives here in San Francisco. She teaches Chinese how to speak English. And she still goes back and forth to China. And she's really into Chinese philosophy. So she's an example of somebody who gets completely absorbed in the culture. It's changed her life. Now we have Craig, who's very similar. Craig was interested in Japanese culture. And Craig was living in San Francisco, working in a building. And he knew these Japanese people. They were coming around. And he had been studying Japanese. And so they said, why don't you come to Japan and teach English? So he did. So he went over and taught at a university there for a couple of years. He spoke Japanese. He studied Japanese culture. He lived in an apartment that he found. He didn't want to live on campus because sometimes when you live around the students, the students have access to you all the time. You don't have any privacy. So he wanted to live off, off campus. He asked, uh, his employer found him a real estate agent 
to find him an apartment. And, and Craig had very specific instructions. I really need a place where it's quiet because I need to rest, I need to sleep. So they found him a place, and it was across the street from a woodworking factory or something like that, which he discovered one afternoon when he was riding around checking out the neighborhood. So he said, well, I can't live here. And so he went and got his own real estate agent and got himself another apartment. But by doing that, his, the Japanese real estate agent that he rejected lost face and his employer lost face. So he created a, a little bit of a cultural conflict there, but he couldn't help it because he had to get his needs met. So this is another topic that comes up sometimes in different cultures. Anyway, he's very happy there. He, he got fluent Chinese, and he even found... He had, he had no difficulties, Craig, had no difficulties, as far as he's concerned. He was there for, I don't know, four or five years, and he found a group in his town that played ultimate Frisbee on Sunday afternoon, which is exactly what he used to do in San Francisco before he left. It was amazing. So after that, he left, after he left Japan, he traveled around the world for about a year, and he came back to the States, and he said, you know, I'm going to retire when I'm 62. I was raised to think that I'm going to grow up and I have to work all the time, 40 hours a week. I don't have to do that. So it changed his life. It gave him a whole new perspective on, I can live differently. I can live, more, I can live less expensively. I can travel around. I can live anywhere. It really opened up the world for him. Now, we have Ted. Ted uh, was in his 50s, and um, he got a master's in teaching English, and he wanted to go abroad and teach English. This is a man who grew up in the hills in West Virginia. He said he hadn't even seen the ocean until he was 17 years old. And so he went and applied for a State Department fellowship. And the State Department accepted him, and they sent him to Vietnam. Now, this wasn't Ted's first choice because he had avoided going to Vietnam when we had the war in Vietnam. And he felt guilty about the war, and he, was, uh, he thought they wouldn't like him, and it was going to be difficult, and he didn't speak French, and he didn't speak Vietnamese. He didn't speak any languages. And he had been abroad a little bit in China where he had taught English a little bit before he got his master's degree. So he went to Vietnam, but the State Department gave him a lot of training. They trained him for a week in the, in the United States. They covered all of his insurance. Everything was taken care of. They sent him over to Hanoi. They had an orientation in Hanoi. And then they sent him out to this little village where he was teaching at this little school. And when he got there, there was a woman who was his liaison, and she said... You know, she helped him out. She spoke English, and he got a place to live, which was off campus so that he would have privacy. And he doesn't speak any language, and he's completely dependent on his students, which is very helpful. Always for the English teachers, they're dependent on their students. And I can speak to that as well. So one night, about three months in, Ted's at home, and it's pouring rain. You know, it rains a lot over there sometimes when they have a rainy season. It's pouring rain. His lights go out. His phone's not working. He's all alone in his house. He doesn't know what to do, and he starts crying. <laughs> He's so upset. He says he got hysterical. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know who to call. He didn't have a place to call anybody anyway. And so that was three months in. He said, finally, he sort of hung on for another few months, and he thought, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go home. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. But he realized that if he went home, he'd have to give up his stipend, and then where would he be, right? And he had a good stipend, apparently, when he was there. So about six months in, he decided, you know, I've got to get out. I've got to do something. So he got himself a bicycle. He started riding around a little bit. And then he started taking the train to Hanoi. And he had a lot of job responsibilities. They gave him more and more responsibilities. And he met a woman from Great Britain who lived in Hanoi who had all sorts of manuals and teaching aids that she had created that she gave to him and helped him to meet his responsibilities. And he said, you know, he said, I, I couldn't believe it. He said, when I left, I was crying. I didn't want to leave. And I thought the people there would hate me, but it turns out they felt like they beat us. So I didn't have to feel guilty because they beat the Americans. So he felt really good about it. And now he spends six months a year in Vietnam. He lives here and he goes back there. He's been doing that ever since. 
So now we come to people that are a little less classic expatriate. We have a man named um, Gary. Gary was in his 20s, and he was interested in Vedanta philosophy, so he thought, I need to go to India because I need to find out what Vedanta's like on the ground. It never really been anywhere. So he was, in educa- he was in alternate education, so he looked on the internet, he found a job. There was an institute in India that he could go to and work for them. So I thought, this is great. He got the job, his six-month job, and he went over to India. They picked him up. They took him to his place, and he said, <laughs> he said, he says, well, you wanted it, you got it. <laughs> you know, he was completely shocked. If anybody has been to India straight out of the United States, you know, it's, you know, a nice boy, nice white boy grew up in Ohio. It was quite a shock to him. And so, but they, they, he thought they were going to take care of everything. He was working for this institute and he'd be taken care of. So he didn't plan anything and he didn't know any of the languages, but fortunately he speak English. So they, they took him to a place. They gave him a place to live, which was he described it as a little concrete bunker in an apartment complex with the local Indians, which is what he wanted because he wanted to live in the country with the people. Just the opposite of some of the people we talked about earlier. He was completely wanted to immerse. He just wanted to give himself up to it. He wanted the Indian experience. So he got, he got a place to live. He did not have a refrigerator. He didn't have anything to cook with. And they gave him a little bed. They, they took a little bed and gave him a little bed, and they gave him a sleeping bag, right? So uh, and then he went to work in the office, and sometimes he wouldn't have breakfast, and, and they would, they, he thought they would feed him, but they didn't feed him. But he said part of it's his fault. He didn't advocate enough for himself. And he did some work for them, and... And he had handlers that would take him around and help him with buying some food and showing him around town and taking him to villages. So he felt like he got an experience that he would not have otherwise have gotten being by himself because he got the Indians took him around to see things. So now Gary said when he left, he was very sad to leave as well. He cried when he left and he said, you know, I took my, I, I cleaned out my place and I took my sleeping bag back to the Institute to give it back to them that they had loaned me. And they were mad at me because I couldn't get all the rat poop out of it. <laughs> and he said, I tried, you know, but I couldn't get it out of the sleeping bag. So those were the conditions that he was living in. Now, um, Frank and Lucy, my only couple went to two different places Frank was um, a very executive manager level in an international soft drink company. And, you know, they have, it's the same as the international construction companies. They have their little modular living spaces all over the world. And he and his wife, after their children were grown, went to Bahrain. Now, Bahrain apparently is a very rich country, right? And so when they, they didn't know what to expect. They had no cultural training before they left. And when they got there, they were living on the expat compound and they were with all the other expats. And it was a very international community. There's a lot of international banking there. And it turns out there were a lot of cocktail parties there. And one of the difficulties they had there was they did not have enough formal clothing. She had to get clothing made because she didn't have enough clothes to wear these black tie parties that went on a few nights a week. And she, her husband went to work and it was down to business right the first day and they didn't give him any training. They thought, well, he's the boss. He knows what to do. So he went, but he did, it's the same thing. He did his job there that he would do at any soft drink company position anywhere in the world. Celebrate New Year's Eve and ring in 2020 with the perfect view at the Commonwealth Club's premier Embarcadero location. As thousands of spectators watch from below, you'll revel in rooftop views of the famous Embarcadero fireworks, indulgent cuisine, high-end spirits, lively entertainment, and the ultimate New Year's Eve experience. Our New Year's Eve party was ranked in the top 10 parties of San Francisco. So visit our website and reserve your spot today. Commonwealthclub.org. 
You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. But Lucy had a lot of free time. So she hung out with some of the expatriate women. And she said during Ramadan, they'd have parties with all the Arab women and they'd be all lounging around on carpets and getting their hands done with henna and eating fruit. And, you know, that sort of life. She said it was like a fairy tale, the whole thing. And she, they were there for two years. So one thing she said was very interesting. She said, you know, as Americans... Um, we found out that we were, we were just like everybody else. We were just the hired help. Her daughter said to her, you know, I've never been in a place before where the Americans were not looked up to. Because everything was run by the royal family. They owned everything, and you were just working for them. After Bahrain, they went to Belarus. This was 2000, 1999, right? And they got a little bit of Russian training before they left and in Vienna, I believe. And then they were sent off to Belarus and they were on the train, on the plane, going to Belarus. And before they got off the plane, the Australians that were with them, that were going with them, said, grab all the toilet paper, get all the toilet paper you can find, take it with you. And so they landed in Belarus and... The first day, they, they had to stay in a hotel. They didn't have a place to stay. So they lived in a hotel for a year. They couldn't find a place to live. The hotel had heat for most of the winter, but then they would turn it off in the spring because they turned it off citywide. There was no heat anywhere. And then in the summer, they turned the air conditioning on, but only for a while, and then they turn it off. So there were periods of time in between where you didn't have enough heat or you didn't have enough air conditioning. And so while Frank was working, and they had interpreters, he had Russian interpreters working with him, and he tried to get, the, um, get the, his workers to go on commission because he knew they'd make more money on commission than they would make as, as a salary. And nobody wanted to do it because they were communists and they didn't think it was right. That if you didn't make it, you don't get paid for it. So then gradually he started a little tiny partial commission set up for them. They started making more money. They got very excited. So then everybody went on commission. And one of the, some of the things that they liked about Belarus, they had very deep friendships with the local people. They had relationships with other expats and they got close to the Russians. She studied some Russian while she was there. And she would have the expat women and the Russian women over to her house. And one day she had a little party of women over to her house. And this is after they got a house, after that first year. They were there six years. They, she had made some banana bread and a fruit salad. Very common thing to have, right? Something we might do. And some of the women were whispering to each other. And she said, well, what, what's the matter? And they said, we have never seen more than one fruit at a time. And this was right around the time where bananas had just been introduced into Belarus. And everybody was going crazy for bananas. They did not have them. All they had was apples before that. And she said every Sunday they would have this big party where people would march into the forest. And they would have this big gathering. They have a giant picnic and they would be there all day. She said, people always spent hours together. Not, I'll meet you for coffee at Starbucks, we'll leave in an hour. But they would spend all afternoon together. She had, they had some friends that were, into, that were connected with the cultural program of the area. So they went to a lot of classical concerts and the ballet and all that sort of thing. She said it was a wonderful experience. And when it got a little bit tough, because it was a little tough in some ways, they would go up to Scandinavia or <laughs> Italy or something for an R&R. &R. 
So when she came back to the state, she said it was one of the best experiences of their lives. So we have one more expat, and that is Peter. Peter, who is a, who's a man of the church. You either call him a pastor or a priest or a father. And he had an opportunity to go to Jerusalem to work with a man there who was guiding pilgrim tours around to all the religious sites. So Peter went to Jerusalem. He didn't know any Arabic. He didn't know any Hebrew. And the man gave him a place to live. He was sort of living in his owner's mother's house or something. <laughs> you know, he gave him a place to live. And every two weeks, they'd, they'd take a new group around this tour. And they always went to the same places, and they ate at the same restaurants. And so he got to be a part of the community. He was Uncle Peter, and he made friends with all the Arabs, and people took him home, and he talked about how great the Arab hospitality was and how much it meant to him. And, and he wishes he would have learned more Arabic, but he was intimidated. He said, maybe I should have a couple words a day. But it changed his life. He just he felt like he had a very profound experience of humanity while he was there. And he said it reignited his feeling of gratitude, that we should be grateful for everything we have. And it really, it really, he felt like he fell in love over there. And he's been back several times since, and he has friends, and they come over here. So in general, I will say that everyone, no matter what difficulties they had, considered it a great success, very happy they did it, and they would recommend. Their advice to other people is do it, have an open mind, go over without expectations, understand that where you're going is not like the United States. Don't compare it to the United States. Go see what they are and find out what that is. And then you have that experience and you have your experience of the United States. Some of the engineers and Allison all talked about, make sure you have your papers in order. <laughs> have a proper visa. Make sure you know about the tax laws. Are you going to have to pay taxes here? Are you going to pay taxes there? Are you going to pay taxes both places? What, should you keep your house? What if you sell your house? You come back, you can't buy another house because real estate prices have gone up. What about your kids? Are they going to get to go to school? What if you're in a little village somewhere? Where are your kids going to go to school? What about health care? Can you come back to the States if you need to? So my experience as a, in the Peace Corps was sort of like the State Department. We had extensive training. We had, I think, three days in the States in orientation where we all got together then we all got on a plane and went to Morocco. And then we all lived together for the summer. And we had a summer-long training. We were living in a high school dormitory school situation. First, we had Arabic language training, six hours a day. And then after a few weeks, we had four hours of Arabic and two hours of how to teach English as a foreign language and then two hours of Arabic, and four hours of how to teach English as a foreign language. And you're there, so every day you go out on the streets, and you're bargaining and talking to people, you're getting immediate feedback, immediate feedback all the time, you're learning the language. And I spoke Arabic all the time. And then after our training, they sent us to a town. They assigned us a town, gave us some money, and they sent it just be like here. You go to a place, you have to find an apartment, you have to get your power turned on, you have to furnish your apartment, just like you would do here. And we did that. And um, I lived in one town for the first year, and I, li I transferred to another town for the second year. And the way I dealt with my stress was when I was stressed out, because it wasn't easy all the time, I exercised all the time. So the first year I used to run, and there were a couple other American women in the town with me. We used to get up and run in the morning. And the second year I was there, I took karate class, and I went to Casablanca every weekend, which was 50 miles away, and I took jazz dance class with an African-American jazz 
dance teacher. So it was fantastic. I have friends in Casablanca. And uh, after two years, I came back and, uh, to San Francisco. But why I felt like, uh, like a lot of the people who were in my study, after I was in the Peace Corps, I felt like I could do anything. You know, Gary said, after that trip in India, forget about it. And he travels half the year now. He's only in the States a few months a year, and he's in India, and then he went on to China, and then he's in Thailand. He's all over the place. He's a global citizen now. He's a man of the world, and he's not looking back. He said that he felt like when he was in India, he could finally be the man he wanted to be instead of being the man that everybody was trying to make him be when he, when he grew up, when he was here. So I'd like to open it up to questions now and see what you, uh, anything else you'd like to know. Great. And I'd like to remind our uh, radio and online audiences that they're listening to Denise Schickel talking about the expat experience. First question. Did you talk to any retirees who were going abroad for just to experience an adventurous lifestyle? Uh, so, no. The, um, when you write a dissertation, you have to follow rules, right? And um, the rules were people working overseas and coming back. That was the parameter. So I had to get people who were sent overseas, except for those other ones that I told you were a little bit looser. There were people in my study, the two engineers, the construction worker that have since retired, and Frank and Lucy from Bahrain and Russia, they are retired now. But they were not retired at that time in their lives. It to this took them to the end of their career. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Next question. Who would like to share one of their expat experiences? You know, this was a lot, uh, everybody here or a lot of people here have an experience. H how many people, or does, did anybody go abroad and really regret it? Is anybody in that situation? Anybody I really regretted doing that? I should not have wasted my time. See, absolutely nobody. So it matches the study that she did. So who wants to say what they got out of, out of the experience and, and a little bit about the experience? Anybody like to? to tell us what they experienced. Thank you very much. <laughs> so my name is Cindy, and I, my experience was shorter than that of others. Do you want me to come up there, or is it okay? Um, I worked for GE Capital, so very large international company, and I went to live in Japan, in Tokyo, for six months. I wish I had been able to stay longer. <laughs> I was giving a, quite a bit of um, training, not necessarily before I went. However, I was able to meet a couple of the people I was going to work with. And I was sent over for a week, and they helped me find a service apartment. I figured out how I was going to get back and forth to work on the trains. So I had some sense of comfort when I actually showed up on my doorstep there. Um, Everything was very foreign, obviously. Um, GE gave us some language training. They definitely gave us cultural training. And um, some of the people in the office spoke English. Others did not. But it was an amazing experience with many, many cultures all wrapped into this one office. So from South Korea, China, uh, Pakistan, India, and Japanese, and one very short American woman who was supposed to be telling them what to do. <laughs> anyway, the entire thing was fabulous. Did a lot of exploring, uh, took the train to whatever stop, got up and came up out of the subway to see what was there. Thoroughly enjoyed exploring. So it was an amazing experience, and I, too, would like to go back and live somewhere else, as not as an expat, because I'm not working anymore, but as someone who would like to experience another country in that similar way, where you immerse yourself in the local culture, find local restaurants, find your way around all by yourself, mm -hmm. but with the support of a company in my particular situation. Anyway, it was fabulous. Great story. <laughs> who else will we'll, uh, do the same thing here? 
since we have so many people with experience. Thanks, Judy. Mm -hmm. Well, my situation was slightly different. I decided I wanted to live in Paris, and I got TEFL certified, as you did, and went on my own. So I did not have a company send me. Uh, before I moved there, I went on um, an exploratory trip, and I had a number of different um, interviews with some schools. I had sent my CV and and was, you know, really warmly welcomed until I found out it was a catch-22. Well, we can't hire you unless you get working papers, and you can't get working papers unless you have a job. So it was unfortunate that I did not, I was not able to work at one of the schools. However, I did develop um, private students, and I taught private students. Those people are still in my life. This was 2006. And I think the difference between, you know, being retired and not working, you feel way more a part of the community. Um, I lived in an area of Paris that was the 13th arrondissement. It's way north. Nobody there spoke English. It was completely outside the tourist realm, and I really felt a, a part of the community. Because I was by myself, I really had to make an effort to go do different things. I would go to um, author signings. Um, I had a couple of groups I was involved with. Um, there's an organization called the American Club. It's on the um, right bank, and there's a thriving expat community there, but it's like I said, my, my experience was different because I was independent, but I would do it again in a heartbeat. It was just such a wonderful experience. Yeah, I'd like to say something else about my time in Morocco, um, my social life, all right? Now, when I was in Morocco, I never wore, I never exposed my arms. I always wore skirts that were down to here, or I wore pants, um, I did not date. Um, I tried once to date one of the Moroccan men teachers, but it didn't work very well. <laughs> and um, I basically lived like a nun while I was there, and I hung out with my students. You know, I would go home with my students and one of my students lived out in the country. We had to take a bus and then walk up a hill to get to his place. I spent the night there, sleeping on the floor on a mat. And uh, some of my other students uh, were in town. I would go over to this one student, one of my girl students. I was at her house all the time, eating dinner and then, you know, hanging out with her and her mom. But being a... Um, being a woman in Morocco, because I behaved in such a conservative way, they didn't look at us as real women, <laughs> you know, not like they're women. So I had a lot of freedom, as opposed to the American men who weren't allowed to talk to the women. I could talk to anybody. And I went to the hammam every week, the public bath, where you get scrubbed down, you know, with the stone, and you get super clean till the next week. So I was really... <laughs> So, and I was, spoke Arabic. Everybody knew I spoke Arabic. I spoke to my students in class when I felt like it. And um, so being there for me was a real cultural experience. Uh, what the, yeah, oh, and I never had any discipline problems with my students, where some of the other Americans who were smoking pot and hanging out with the French, you know, the kids knew all about it. Everybody knew everything, you know? They didn't need no internet, right? Total Arab grapevine. So everything we did, they all knew. And so I lived a super straight life, and um, I had a great time. I had a great time. I'd go to parties with my students. You know, I'd go over to their house and eat, and I could eat. When I'd go to a, somebody's house, I could eat with the men, or I could eat in the kitchen with the woman, women. That's what I'm trying to say. I, I had... I had a range, you know, so we really, and I traveled around the country by myself because I spoke Arabic and that was like my pass. You know, I could understand things. I could talk to people and they were so shocked that I spoke Arabic that it was, it was like, <laughs> it was like hitting them with a, you know, it was like hypnotic, you know, it was like putting them in a trance or something, you know, oh my God, you speak Arabic. And sometimes they try to speak French to me, but I didn't want to speak French because the French were the colonial power, and they didn't like the French, but they did like Americans at that time. 
And so when they speak to me in French, I would start speaking to them in Arabic and I'd say, ah, I don't speak French. I'm, a, I'm American. I speak English, you know? And so I could just keep them. And I knew if I could speak Arabic to them that they would like me because Arabic reaches right into their heart. And that was my, um, that was my security blanket, I guess, if you could call it that. It was great. How old were you when you did that? I was 28 to 30. I was single. I was lonely. I felt like I, I was in their culture as far as I could get, you know, and um, that they didn't really know me. Do you know what I mean? I was their teacher, and they, they respect teachers, so I had a good time with that. And, but I felt like they didn't really know who I was, but I could embed myself as far as I could in there, but I couldn't go the whole way. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't convert, so to speak. I couldn't assimilate because um, I have ideological differences with their culture. But I had a great time in Morocco, <laughs> right? And I love teaching. It was fun. How about the weekends in Casablanca? I mean, that sounds like yeah. right, right out of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I want to say something about that. So I had a bicycle, right? So when I go to Casablanca, I go down to the bus station, ride my bike down. Then I take my, they take my bicycle and put it on top of the bus because everything goes on top of the bus, the, the chickens and the bikes and, you know, the baggage. And then I go to Casa and I would get there at my stop and they take my bike off and I get on my bike and ride over to my friend's house. It was amazing. I mean, it was great, you know? Yeah. And we, we didn't get paid much in the Peace Corps. They wanted to keep us, they call it living on the economy. So you're not at a higher level. Like the French got paid four times as much as we made there because the French were still around teaching and stuff like that. And, uh, but they knew that we didn't have a lot of money, so we're kind of closer to them than the French, plus the French were, you know, French. French. <laughs> <laughs> Other stories? Um, actually, I have a question. Did your study include any interviews with children that had been part of the expat experience and what it was like for them coming back? Well, good question. I didn't speak to the children. But Gabrielle, the one who went to London, I mentioned his, um, you know, health issues, right? One of, his child, ch one of his children was sick. They had to send him back to the U.S. for treatment. He came back. and He had a son and a daughter. And when they came back to the States, his daughter had a really hard time adjusting. Yes, he said she did. I did not speak to the children, but um, he told me that. And the Waldo, the guy who went to the Dominican Republic, they took their son with him. And this kid started playing basketball everywhere. He got in all these basketball tournaments in the neighborhood. And he became this huge basketball star. So he was thrilled. And he thought they were living on the beach, you know, and he thought he was living the high life. He had a great time. Yeah. Oh, but, but um, Gabrielle's kids, when they went to college... They use their experience as living abroad in their college essay, and he thinks that helped them get into a good school. So that was good. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. More stories. Hi. I have a question. I um, was curious about how can you find out about the countries that do the double taxation, taxed in the U.S., taxed overseas, and also how the visas would work? if you knew any resources you could share. Thanks. Well, uh, are you thinking about going on your own? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I would like to. You would like to? Right. Well, see, when you go through a company, they're the ones with the information, right? And um, if you go by yourself, I don't, I frankly don't know Chamber of Commerce uh, website. Their own things in this. Yeah. State Department has some information. Yeah, State about Department. About other yeah, about yeah. other countries. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But like, do, do you know where you want to go? I have a couple places, some in Europe, some in Well, because I know I'm, I go to Germany now all the time, right? And I know there's a German-American Chamber of Commerce mm -hmm. in the city. Right here right? in San Francisco. Yeah. So if you can, if you know where you want to go, you can do you can do that, and then you can go there if they're on. I mean, because there's a lot of consulates around here. Do you know? I would show up 
you know, and the more you can face to face, you know, do some research on the internet. And, and since everybody's in the, living in the virtual world now, right, the more you can face to face with people, the better off you are. You'll get it. You'll get help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, that's very good advice. If it's, if it's you're going to a country that's a very big country that has consulates, they have all that information because they bring people in here, but then they have other people go abroad. That's what they're they're there for. Yeah. I just wanted to mention. I don't know if this is still the case at all. This is a thousand years ago, but my parents, my dad was in uh, in Saudi working as an engineer, and all the engineers, the foreign engineers, were laid off that year. And he consulted with his brother, who was an accountant, and it turned out that it was less expensive for my parents to stay out of the U.S., travel around the world, and then come back in terms of taxes. Uh, and I just wanted to mention that because it might be beneficial to somebody. Yes, they might get a world tour over that. Any other questions, stories? I'll, I'll tell one story. I lived more than six years abroad in different places. Um, it, it, one thing, I just want to tell you about the Soviet Union. So I was in the Soviet Union in 73 uh, for the summer, and we stayed in Leningrad, and we lived. It was the only, the only uh, group of, of foreign students that were allowed in. It was supposed to be an exchange student, but uh, there were no exchanges. I mean, there were no <laughs> Soviet communist students coming over here. Uh, but there were about 150 kids, and we lived in a dorm that had been built in the 30s uh, and, and was just uh, like a 10-by-12-foot room for four of us. Um, we had we had uh, little metal cots, um, and the guy on my side of the room was six three, and I'm a little bit tall, and we we literally had to stick our feet out uh, at each other, and and cross our feet over because there wasn't enough room for us on our side of the room, um, and and uh, those of you who know it's a uh, Leningrad's fairly far north, and we were there in the summer, so on June 21st the. Uh, longest day of the year for sunlight. The sun went down at about 12 and came up at 12.30, so, and we had no curtains, so there was you know, light and all this. The, the uh, showers in the basement uh, did not work, uh, and that was a building for 800 people. 800 people. We had 150 on just one floor. Um, one of the funny things that happened, I mean, this was, you know, we were all 20 years old at the time. One of the funny things that happened was that uh, after we were there for about two weeks, uh, the, the bathrooms, uh, there was a male bathroom and a female bathroom on either end of that for 150 people for four facilities that weren't working. Um, and, uh, and then there was a room with a bunch of sinks in it, and the sinks were really all you could use to wash up. Um, and nobody wanted to walk all the way over to the other end uh, of, the, of the thing, so uh, everybody just used the same thing. That was the first uh, you know, gender-neutral uh, uh, bathroom situation I've ever been in, uh, which uh, nobody minded until the, the uh, Danes showed up. There was a group of, of students from, from Denmark, and they were much less inhibited about how they uh, washed up in the morning, which, which didn't bother anybody except for the girls that were competing with them. So, so, so that was part of it. But because of those, that re- I tell you about our washing situation, because we eventually had to figure out how to stay clean in this community. And so we went to the public baths. That was what everybody did. There were these big public baths. And so we went there. The first time we went there, it was uh, you know, about as big as three basketball courts uh, open. And they had spigots everywhere you know, and big buckets. And you were supposed to fill the buckets and then uh, soap yourself up and fill the buckets <laughs> over you, and, you know, and, and do that. And then they had a, a, a steam room in which you had the birch barks to, to, to hit yourself and go up and thing like the, like the Scandinavians do. Um, so we went there one time, really liked it. It cost like five kopecks, that was like seven cents, something like that to go. So we found our way to stay clean. So the next three, four days later, we went back and we started. And it was, it was also like walking into a Fellini movie, okay? Because in 1973 in the Soviet Union, if you had to get an idea about how bad World War II was for them, there was almost no males that you ever saw that were over 60 years old, anywhere, almost anywhere. And the ones that you did had one leg or one arm missing or something like that. So this was a, a big male uh, bath that we went to, of course. And you'd walk in and there'd be seven or eight people in this huge, huge room. And, and none of them would be completely you know, free of some kind of maiming from, from the war. So we would go in. Uh, you know, One time we were starting to go in. And this is the part of the story that I want to tell you about how cultural. So remember, it's 1973. So we had one guy, one of our students, had, had very, very long hair. Um, and he used to get spit on by the, by the uh, grandmothers, the babushkas. Uh, and they would say, Amerikansky gipi, 
Gippy. They, they don't say I have hippie, but it was like American hippie is what they would say to him. So we had this guy with us, uh, four of us, and we're getting undressed to go into the, into the bath. And suddenly the two other people that were there, two Russians, uh, we, we heard a noise outside, sound like thunder. And uh, they heard this and they quickly got their clothes back on and ran out the door. And we thought, what's going on? Well, we should go into the shower. And, and then I said, well, wait a minute. If they're leaving, what is that sound? And, and the sound got louder. And I said, you know, it's, it was sunny when we came. How can there be thunder? So we quickly got dressed. We went outside, uh, outside this door over here. And we saw a battalion of the Red Army coming to their weekly shower. And wow. they were marching up the street double time. And that was what the thunder was. Um, and we had an Amerikansky Gippy with us. Um, so we quickly f left our five Kopecks behind. <laughs> and we snuck out this other door and down a side street and everything and left to, to, to take off. Because it was not worth it to get clean uh, if we were going to be in, in that hall with a thousand guys from the Red Army, all of whom were you know, 18, 19 years old as well. So anyway, sometimes you just have to avoid the local culture. <laughs> So thank you very much, Denise. That was really great. That was a, a very good look into, into the expat experience. And I'm glad that so many people who've had it uh, were here tonight. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. <laughs>